This morning we're going to talk about worship a little bit, and then we're going to do some more worship. And to do that, I want to read from Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. Romans chapter 1. And I'll start with verse 20. In your bulletins, it starts with verse 21. So verse 20 will be for you a kind of warm-up. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. You can see something of the power of God and the divine nature of God in creation, Paul is saying. And now he talks about the Romans. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, because of this, God gave them over, gave up on them. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, listen to this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I, I have such a burden on my heart as I did the first service that this Word would go forth and really hit. But Lord, I'm acutely aware and, and we are all, Lord God, knowledgeable that human speaking is just human speaking unless your spirit decides to do something with it. And so, Lord, we pray right now, Lord, for your spirit to be present here. We pray, Lord God, for your spirit to function as a sort of magnet on our minds, to draw our attention to the Word of God. And Lord God, in doing that, let your spirit do battle against any force that would try to distract us because of the heat or because of problems in our life. Lord God, war against those sorts of opposing forces and cause us to be centered in on your word because it's so important, Lord. And use this as an opportunity, God, to change us, to make us the kind of people you want us to be. Let your anointing fall on me, Lord. Let your anointing fall. It's useless without your anointing, Lord. Let your anointing fall with all of your power, with all of your conviction, with all of your wisdom, Lord. And be glorified in what is said here. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, we're, we're going to be talking about worship. And I want to start by sharing with you something that happened to me about a week ago. Sometimes when I can't sleep, it's because I can't sleep. But sometimes when I can't sleep, it's because God isn't letting me sleep. And about a week ago, I had one of those kind of experiences where the Lord was just sort of, He keeps putting these thoughts in my head and kind of just saying, come on, let's talk. Come on, let's talk. And it's kind of irritating. It's like, you know, for you who are married, you know this. When you want to go to sleep and your wife wants to talk or your husband wants to talk, well, usually it's the wife who wants to talk, but... Uh, <clears throat> and you want to go to sleep, you know, and the Lord just kind of keeps on bugging you. But I've learned to obey 
Well, I, I've pretty much learned to obey the voice of the Lord when that's happening. Um, and so I got out of bed and I went out back on my deck. And it was, a, it was a hot night, but there was a cool breeze and a full moon. And I just started for, at first begrudgingly sort of praising God. You know, Lord, you're great. <laughs> Wish I could sleep, but you're great. And slowly but surely, I began to get into it. Slowly but surely, the reality of what I was doing began to dawn on me. Slowly but surely, I began to sense His presence around me. Slowly but but surely, the the power of God seemed to come around me. And I became more invested in what I was saying and more deliberate about what I was saying and more passionate about what I was saying. And before too long, I was back on my deck at 2 o'clock in the morning, just walking back and forth, just praising God, just worshiping Him. In all of his glory and all of his splendor. And it was, a, it was a joyous thing. A fatiguing thing, but a joyous thing. And somewhere in the course of that, I all of a sudden became aware of this. And you can think I'm flaky if you want to, but I became aware of the fact that there were all these frogs in this pond chirping away. And I became aware of the fact that the trees were just blowing so beautifully in the wind. And I became aware of the fact that there was all these lightning bugs dancing around, just blipping on and off down below me. And I became aware of the fact that there's these grand stars up in the heavens just twinkling up there. And I became aware of the fact that I, as I was praising God, was joining in this incredible symphony in which everything in creation was praising God. Everything in its own way was doing what it was created to do, and in its own way was showing forth the glory of God. The frogs, and it was a a strange sort of tickling kind of thing I realized, but there's like a symphony of these frogs, just, just, and they had all this kind of pattern, and and there's different frequencies, and it was just going on and on, it was kind of evolving. And I felt like we were one big chorus, and the trees whistling were part of the chorus, and and the stars up there glimmering were part of the chorus, and the fireflies blinking were part of the chorus, and it was like one grand display of God's glory. The wisdom of God shone forth in this tree, and the beauty of God shone forth in the frogs croaking, and the power of God shone forth in the stars twinkling. And the love of God shone forth in this little human being, just showing forth his praises. And I then knew kind of what Paul was getting at in Romans 1.20 when he says that you can see, you can see if you just look. It's clear if you have eyes to see. You can see the glory of God. You can see the power of God. You can see the wisdom of God. You can see the very nature of God and the things that God has made because it's His artwork. It shows forth His design. It's got His, His fingerprints all over it. And it exists more than anything else for the sole reason of glorifying God. It praises God. Everything in its own way praises God. That's what it was made to do. One medieval... Monk put it this way. Nicholas of Cusa said this. He says, The creation is like one hierarchy of mirrors, what they used to call the great chain of being. It's this hierarchy of mirrors. And everything from the greatest mirror to the littlest molecule in its own way reflects back the rays of the sun who is God. All of creation is to mirror back. That's why it's there. It shows forth something of God's glory, something of His grandeur, something of His wisdom. That's why it is there. A great scheme. Some mirrors are big. Some mirrors are small. Some mirrors are bright. Some mirrors are dim. But all the mirrors show forth different aspects. They reflect back the glory of the sun who gives rise to the whole thing. God's glory is found throughout creation. And at the the top of this hierarchy are beings 
who reflect in a way that nothing else can the glory of God because these beings can do it by choice. I'm referring to angelic beings and I'm referring to human beings. As I was out there on the deck praising God, I was the one thing out there that was doing it by choice. I could have stayed in bed. I didn't have to do it. Nothing was making me do it. The frogs, they just chirp because that's their instinct. And the, and the, and the trees have got to blow and the stars have got to twinkle and the lightning bugs have got to dance. And everything does it just because God made it to do, do it. And that's beautiful and it's great and it shows forth the wisdom of God. But it doesn't show forth a loving relationship with God. Only free creatures who choose to make God their master and worship God reflect that. At the top of God's creation, at the top of God's plan for the whole, is this designed to have free beings who enter into a relationship with Him and show forth His love because they are in a personal relationship with Him because they are there by choice. And they praise God by choice. And they reflect the dimension of God that nothing else can, can really reflect. The Bible says that God's plan, while He's delighted with the whole of creation, God's chief aim, God's chief plan was to have, Ephesians 1 tells us this, he, he planned this from the foundation of the world, that he was going to have a people. And this people, considered as a whole and considered as individuals, are going to be a trophy case. A trophy case, a mirror, if you will, that will, re that will reflect his love, reflect his grace, reflect his glory, and will worship him and send forth praise, magnifying, reflecting back the glory of his presence throughout all of eternity. It's called the church, the called out ones. God's plan was always to have that. People who will mirror back His glory and they do it freely by choice. It's a personal relationship. But that entails, since it is free, it entails that people are free not to worship God. We choose to do it or we can choose not to do it. And the dividing line, the most fundamental dividing line that separates all human beings is this decision. Will you live to glorify God or are you going to live not to glorify God? To glorify yourself, to go your own way. At the root of all evil, at the root of all sin, at the root of everything that opposes God is this decision. I'm not going to worship. I will not reflect the sun. I want to reflect my own light. You see it in Isaiah 14 with regard to Satan, who was called Lucifer, the bright and morning star, the highest of all the angels, could have been the greatest of all mirrors, reflect the warmth of the sun and participating in that warmth, could have been a glorious being. But Isaiah 14 tells us that he said in his heart, I do not want to reflect the sun. I want to be the sun. I want to reflect my own rays. I want to live on my own. I want to carry out my own schemes. And so he rebelled against God. And at that point, he became Satan, Satan, the adversary, the evil one. At the root of all sin is the decision not to live to glorify God. And so it is with human beings. The most fundamental decision you make in your life is this. Are you going to live for yourself? Or are you going to live for the glory of God? Are you going to do what God created you to do? The Romans decided to go their own way. That's what we read about in Romans chapter 1. Paul tells us that though they could see the glory of God, all can or at least should be able to see the glory of God just in creation and know why they were created just by looking at creation. Though they knew God, they did not glorify God. They chose to suppress the truth in a lie. And Paul says they worshiped the creature more than the creator. They made a fundamental decision 
that they were going to go their own way, be lords of their own life, have it their own way, carry out their own philosophy, make their own religion, worship the creature rather than the creator. And that lied at the root of everything else that the Romans did. It's interesting here, but the Bible says that because of that decision, they degenerated. And Paul then talks about their homosexuality in Rome that was widespread at the time as evidence of their, of their fallenness. But he doesn't say... He doesn't say that God judged them because of their homosexuality. He says that their homosexuality was a result of God judging them. What God judged them of was their idolatry. What God judged them was was their heart that would not do what God created them to do, and that is to reflect, reflect His praise and reflect His glory. And the way God judged them, it's really interesting here, but this is the way God judges all people, is He simply says, go your own way. God gave them over to do what they wanted to do. You love darkness rather than light, love darkness. I will not revoke the gift of freedom because you're going to misuse it. You want to do that, you're free to do that. And that, Paul says, is a judgment of God. But what we see here is this. Behind all sin, behind everything that a human being could think as opposed to God and act as opposed to God is a decision not to live for God, not to glorify God. It is what sets a person apart from God. Everything else is simply a consequence of that decision. But the opposite is also true. The opposite is also true. At the root of everything that's good and at the root of the heart of a saved person is the decision to worship God, to live for the glory of God. It's what the Bible calls dying to yourself. Not wanting to live for your own ambitions, not wanting to live to carry out your own schemes, not wanting to be the Lord of your life, but the heart that says, I've had enough of me, I want life, I want God, and therefore submits to the rulership of God and now lives life as a way of reflecting back God's glory in everything we do and everything we say and everything we think to seek to praise God. And God gives to the believer something that the unbeliever is incapable of. God gives to the believer a heart that pants after him, a heart that wants to praise. At the core of every believer, whether you feel it or not, doesn't matter, but at the core, at your heart, at your, at your innermost being, is the desire to do what God created you to do, what God saved you to do, and that is to worship Him, to praise Him, to show forth His glory and His grace. God gives the believer that heart. God gives the believer knees that want to bend. God gives the believer's hands that wants to raise. God gives the believer lips that want to speak forth His glory. God gives the believer a voice that wants to sing forth His praise. And God gives the believer eyes, spiritual eyes that can see the goodness of all of that. The unregenerate heart that has set itself up against God cannot understand worship, and you can't talk them into it. They exist in competition with God. And so they say things like this, well, why is God so egotistical that he wants us to worship him? And they don't see, they don't see the beauty of God making himself the ultimate end of our existence, the ultimate goal of, of, of our existence. They don't see the beauty. They don't see how... how we are most fulfilled when we are not seeking our own life, but seeking to reflect back God's life. They don't see that to have God as the reason for your existence is to have joy as the reason for your existence, and to have life as the reason for your existence, and to have freedom as the reason for your existence. They don't see that. They're, they exist in competition with God, but God gives the believer that eyesight. And it is the most fundamental driving heartbeat the most fundamental defining aspect of our existence. 
to live to praise God. The line that divides humankind more than every, any other line ever could is the line between those who have broken and say, I want to be a mirror for your glory. Reflect on me, Lord. And those who say, I want to reflect my own light and live, go my own way and live my own life. Now, the Bible says that everything we do is to glorify God. We're to live life as an act of worship. All that we think, all that we say, all that we do, all that we aspire to is supposed to reflect what we are created for, and that's the glory of God. But the Bible places a special emphasis on our lives individually and even more emphatically on our time together. A special emphasis and the need to take a certain amount of time and to do explicitly what our whole life is doing implicitly, and that is glorifying God. There's got to be time in our lives individually, and there's got to be time in our life together as a, as a church where we do explicitly this. We say what is true about God. We ascribe worth to God. We worship God. We say out loud with our, with our voice, with our lips, with our hands, with our feet, with everything that's within us, what is true about God. There's three things I want to say about this time of worship, and I'm speaking most specifically about our time together as a church, though it has implications for our devotion life alone. First of all, worship is the central act of the church. Amen. It is the most fundamental thing that we do. Because pray, defining characteristic of our life, our life together is most fundamentally defined by our worship together. In worship, we do explicitly what everything else aims at. The church does a lot of things. We're, we preach the Word of God, and that's important. And we, we're involved in outreach, that's important. And we're involved in helping people, that's important. And we're involved in healing people, that's important. And there's a million things that the church does, and they're all important. But they all, all aim at doing what we explicitly do in worship. And that is to glorify God. The reason for everything else is to glorify God. In worship we do what everything else aims at. It's the central act of the church. It's what defines us more than anything else. And that leads to a second point, and it's this. Worship is the central responsibility of the church. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that it dwarfs in significance every other responsibility that we have. The reason we worship God is because He's worthy. And we are saved, and we know it, and we've got to worship God. And that is a responsibility before it's anything else. There's a lot of benefits that come from worshiping God. But we don't do it because of the benefits. We do it because, first and foremost, it's a responsibility. It is a choice. It is a decision. It is a resolve. It is a commitment. Whatever else it is, it is as a consequence of that. But it's the central responsibility of the church to worship God, to say out loud explicitly with all that is within us that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's deserving of every ounce of our being and our thought and our heart and our tongue and our energy. He's deserving of it all. That means that worship, if we understand it properly, has nothing but nothing to do, nothing to do with what mood you are in. 
It's got nothing to do with how you feel at a particular It's got nothing to do with how good or how bad your circumstances might be. It's got nothing to do with, with, with uh, uh, what went on, on on the morning before you came here. It's got nothing to do with whatever struggles might be going on in your head. It's got nothing to do with your financial situation. The only thing that worship has got to do with is this. What is God worth? And we answer that question every Sunday morning together as a whole by the intensity of our worship. The very act, now follow me on this, this is so crucial. The very act of deciding, making a commitment, making a resolve to worship God, whatever else is going on, says something about what God is worth to you. To worship God because He's worthy means that we say, despite the fact that I don't feel like it, despite the grouchy mood that I'm in, despite the financial struggles that I'm going through, despite the fact that my marriage is falling apart even as I'm singing, despite the fact that my own brain is condemning me and the devil's all over my back, despite the fact that I'm feeling physically sick, despite the fact that I'm dr- despite the fact, whatever else might be going on, I choose to worship God. What we are saying in that very decision, that's the most fundamental act of worship right there. We are saying, God, you are more important than my health. You are more important than my marriage. You're more important than my struggles with the kids. You're more important than my finances. You're more important than my physical comfort. You're more important than everything else in my life. And I say so by deciding to pour my whole being into worshiping you, even though, even though everything else has fallen apart. If there's anything the devil hates, it's worship. So where do you think the devil's going to invest his energy? It'll be in stopping you from worshiping. You have to expect, folks, if we're going to worship God, you've got to expect opposition. You've got to expect it. Something's wrong. If you come in, I don't know, this is an overstatement. Sometimes you're actually in the mood to do it, but, but you've got to expect obstacles. So, he's going to throw everything all of a sudden. Yeah, well, you know, whether you're doing it at home or, or here in a worship service, all of a sudden, your mind starts going flaky. This happened to you? All of a sudden, the kid starts crying. The phone starts ringing. The stove starts burning. Your stomach starts aching. Is that a coincidence or what? No. The enemy wants to, and it doesn't take much for most people to distru- obstruct them from worship. All he needs is a little, give the person next to you a little bit of body odor. That can kill it for some people. I can't worship God. This person, when he raises his hands, you know, <laughs> is God more important than your oscillary sensation? Is that the word oscillary nose? I don't know. Never mind. It was a bad analogy anyways. The commitment to worship God no matter what is is itself an act of worship. The most fundamental act of worship that we do. Despite all that might be going on, we choose to worship God. It's the central act of the church and it's the central responsibility of the church. We do it because God is worthy. Period. No, we need no other reason. There needn't be no other argument. You need no prompts. We shouldn't have to be coached. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. And therefore, nothing else for this half hour, nothing else matters. He gets my all. Because his glory is infinite, everything in my being, my body, my mind, my eyes, my hands, my feet, my heart, my emotions, everything has got to be poured into this. And that act is what reflects the worth of God. And that leads to the third point, and it's this. Worship is the central benefit of the church, the central way the church is benefited. I really believe, again, I think preaching is important, but things can happen in worship that can't happen in preaching. Because the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. He lives there. He resides there. You want God to come down, it's found in worship. Not in a goose pimple feeling that you might have. You might have it, you might not. 
But in the decision to worship God, God lives. God lives in that decision. And when, oh, this is the value of group worship. When you've got 500 people in an auditorium, all who have made the decision to worship God no matter what, God inhabits there and it's multiplied 500-fold, and you give God a chance to do some really great things. One of the things that happens very frequently in worship, when people make that decision to worship God no matter what, to pour their all into worship no matter what, to get passionate about worship no matter what, one of the things that happens is that the things of God become real to you. You know what I'm talking about? We've got so much information in our head that does us absolutely no good because it never gets down to the heart. But when we make a decision to worship God, God lives there. And one of the things that can happen is this. You, you have a lot of information about the grace of God, but sometimes in the middle of worship, all of a sudden, the reality is there. God really is gracious towards me. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. People have told me that, but I feel forgiven. The love of God. You've heard God so loves the world. So many times, but sometimes in worship, all of a sudden it begins to take on flesh. It gets incarnated in your experience, and you realize that God loves you. You feel his love all around you. And that does you a million times more good than all the Bible studies on the word love, agape, or eros, or what have you, that you could ever have. The, the, the genuine experience of the thing, the things of God become real because God becomes tangible. He's here. He's present. You can feel his presence all around you. You don't worship God to feel his presence. That might happen, it might not. You worship God because he's worthy, but when you do that, many times you feel his presence. And here's the other thing, and I want to drive this home as hard as I can. We need to understand that we are one organism. What one of us does affects everybody else. And it may be that you don't need, you're not, you're not in a position where you need to experience the reality of God, but I can guarantee you on every Sunday morning, there's a hundred other people who are in need. And the way you worship, though you're not in need, affects the extent to which they experience what they need. We're together, folks. We have such an individualistic idea of worship sometimes because we live in such an individualistic society. But when we come together on Sunday morning, it's not just about you and Jesus. It's about the church and Jesus. And what every one of us individually does with our worship, whether we're sold out, whether we're committed, whether we're resolved or not, may have something to do with whether John, who's in desperate need, or Mary, who's in desperate need, gets blessed during worship or not. We have a responsibility for one another. We need to be sold out in worship, folks. Absolutely sold out, committed, and passionate as we lift up the Lord. God's reality comes down. A second thing that happens is this. The devils start running. The demons start running. So often, so often, and here's another sermon that I'm not going to preach some other time. So often we, tr we, we analyze our struggles on a fleshly level. My marriage problems are about me and my wife. And my kid problems about me and my kid. And my financial trouble is about me and my boss. And so, and we analyze it in the flesh. And you got to do that, you got to do that, that's not wrong. But very frequently, there is a force behind all that. And we come in here on Sunday morning, and there's a depression to us, or a distraction to us, or an irritability to us, or a worry to us, an anxiety to us, or whatever. And we carry that here, and we try to struggle with it on our own. And then we say, oh, if I could just get rid of this struggle, then I'd feel like worshiping God, and then I'd worship God. You see, you're never going to feel like worshiping God until you worship God when you don't feel like worshiping God because worshiping God is one of the things that breaks the yoke, it breaks the stronghold. The best, most powerful, most dynamic thing you can do in terms of spiritual warfare is in the middle of the war, especially when you feel like you're losing, to turn your eyes to the Lord, look eye to eye in the Lord, and invest your whole being in worshiping Him even though you feel like you're going down the toilet right here and now. You worship God 
And that's what begins to lift the yoke, break the stronghold. And the depression, instead of you trying to struggle with it and trying to figure out how, sometimes it can just lift, the angels lift. Sometimes the physical ailments can just lift. As God inhabits the praises of his people, we give God a chance to do some work here. He's operating, he's doing kingdom work in a way that human words and human programs and human strategies never could. God's at work here. And he begins to heal people, he begins to heal marriages, he begins to break the yoke, he begins to free people. And it's all because... In the middle of the war, we made a decision to worship God. You know, the Israelites sometimes would put the singers and the musicians and the dancers up at the front of their army when they'd go into war. And every one of their opponents thought that they were absolutely buggo, looney tune, crazy going into war against Canaanites with all their military stuff. And here they are just dancing like a bunch of flacos, worshiping God. You know, a lot of good. And they're just licking their chops, the Canaanites. Oh, this is going to be an easy one. God gave them the victory, and he did it to drive home this point. Before you feel any kind of success, before you feel like you're getting the victory, before you feel in the mood, before, before there even seems to be a slight turnaround in the situation, in the middle of the battle when you're facing the enemy eye to eye and you feel like you can't stand up, what's got to come first, what's got to be at the forefront of everything, because God is worth it, has got to be worship. Worship, praise, adoration, thanksgiving, erupting and saying what is true and ascribing worth to God, that's got to be first. In every situation, it's got to be first. In every struggle, it's got to be first. In any mood that you're in, it's got to be first. And when we come together, it has got to be first. The highest priority is in saying to God what is true. And when we begin to worship God, God unites us, you know. There's so many things that could divide us, but when we set our eyes upon the Lord, the Maker... There's a unity. Sometimes there's a unity in your marriage that you couldn't have strategized. There's a unity with your kids you couldn't have strategized. A unity with people that you have conflicts with that you couldn't have brought about because you are turning your attention to something that's way, way, infinitely bigger, better than the differences that divided you. Somehow when you worship God, it doesn't much matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or a Socialist. What you have in common dwarfs in significance every other difference. And when we worship God, it is, I believe, the best thing we can do in terms of evangelism. There are some places that think that you've got to water down worship to make it seeker-sensitive because you don't want to offend anybody. And I'm just going to tell you that I disagree with that point of view. When, when God inhabits the praises of his people, the best thing that any sinner can ever see is people sold out in abandoned worship to God and begin to experience the presence of God. They may not understand what's going on in their head. They may not theologize it. They maybe don't even believe it. But if they've got a heart, any, to any degree, a door that's cracked that wants to reflect the glory of God, they're going to sense something. They're going to sense that there's a presence here, a reality here, that this isn't just words that we're spinning out. It's not some theoretical philosophy. It's not some brainchild of some philosopher. We're talking reality here, and God is here. God is really here. He's walking up and down the aisles. He's, he's pervading his people. He's surrounding us. And even an unbeliever who's got the slightest heart to see it will sense that, and that will do way, way more than any kind of rational talk I can give up here behind the pulpit. Last year we had one guy, I talked to him before the service, and he said, well, I'm an atheist, I'm just coming here to check it out. By the end of the service, he came and gave his heart to the Lord. And it had nothing to do with the sermon I preached, because I don't think he remembered the sermon I preached. It had to do with worship. 
God was there. And he said, you know what? I don't know what it is. I can't explain it, but there's something here. There's something real here. I don't know what it is, but it excites me, and I want it. Bingo. And see, when we come, it's not just about you and the Lord. It's about you and the Lord and everybody else, believer and non-believer. And how you worship the Lord has something to do with maybe whether or not that person's going to give themselves to the Lord or not. We've got a responsibility. Are you getting the drive of this? It's an awesome responsibility. Every Sunday morning to come and to pour ourselves into worship as though it was the first and last time because God is deserving of everything we have, whatever else is going on. Now let me just, before we go into worship, say a couple things reminding ourselves about what worship is. Worship is ascribing worth to God. It's got, it's not about singing. It's not about having a good program up here. It's not about getting a tingling feeling. It's not about anything. It's about one thing and one thing only, and that is saying with our lips, saying with our mind, saying with our bodies what is true about God. God, you are worthy. Worthy of all glory, all praise and honor and adoration. You get my all. That's what worship is. Singing becomes worship only to the degree. It's not worship. I don't care how good it is or how poor it is. It's not worship until this happens. It's worship to the degree that our commitment is absolute. It's worship to the degree that our resolve is absolute. It's worship to the degree that our focus is absolute. It's worship to the degree that we make a decision that whether there's static on the PA system or not, whether we're hot or not, whether the drummer's keeping time or not, whether the singers are on tune or not, whether the people are playing on the same key or not, which sometimes does not happen, we make a decision that that's not going to get in the way of our worship. We worship God. That's when it becomes worship. And you can, you can sing the most beautiful song in the world and it's got zero worship in it, or you can croak like a frog in a pond and it's got all the worship in the world in it, what, what determines the thing is where's your heart? Where's your mind? Are you focused? Are you resolved? Are you poured out? Are you sold out? Worship becomes worship when, to the degree that we are abandoned to the Lord and there's nothing else that matters. To the degree that we are decision, God is worthy, that is worship. Are you, are, are you following this? It's a different mindset, folks. It, the goal is to lose ourselves in the worship of the Lord and to forget everything else. And just give him this half hour or whatever because he deserves it, period. And when we do that, folks, the blessing that comes is beautiful, it is great, it's powerful, it's dynamic, it's explosive, it's transforming. It's worship also, and I close with this, to the degree that we enter into it with everything that we have, including our bodies. We are not just souls locked up in a prison. We are soul and body. And what we do with our body both expresses what is there in our soul and intensifies what is there in our soul. You can't divide it. You know this about body language. You know, uh, uh, how you stand. Uh, it, it reinforces dispositions inside of you. This is why I cannot preach sitting down if my life depended on it. The minute I sit down, I lose it. I got to walk. I got to be up here. I got to be invested. It says something about it. So also... We are to bring before the Lord our whole self, including our body, a heart that will obey God however he prompts us, and a body that we offer up as a living sacrifice before the Lord. Let me share with you an experience I had a couple weeks ago. I was doing this retreat at the open door, and we were singing this song. Hey, musicians, if you want to come out, you can, because we're going to start here in a second. I was singing this song. 
we were all singing this song, about 200 people. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. King of all kings you shall be. And as we were singing this, and while I was getting blessed, everyone was getting blessed, something inside of me said, do it. Do it. All of a sudden it occurred to me that we've been singing and we bow down and we don't. Because it's not proper. It's not the way we do things. And something inside said, bow, bow. Another part of me that wasn't of God's way, I'll look, I'll look foolish, I'll look silly. I'm the retreat leader, I have to keep a little bit of credibility. What little I have left, I gotta keep. People will think I'm trying to draw attention to myself. That's one of the biggest worry people have. Well, people will think I'm trying to draw attention to myself. You know, it's the funniest thing, you can think that in an auditorium full of people raising their hands, if you've never done it before, you'll think that you're gonna get all the attention if you raise your hands, when in fact, no one's gonna notice. Amen. But that's how, in fact, when I was thinking this, there were already a bunch of people in back of me who were bowing down, but I didn't know it. I thought I was the only one. And the Lord said to me, he said, Greg, if they got a problem with you bowing down, that's their problem. They're supposed to be focused on me anyways. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Am I more important than what they think? And my answer had to be, yep. And I got down. And as we sang, I bow down, I just went down like this. I just began to go like this. And that behavior, that submission, that humility, that intensified. I thought I was submitted, but my body wasn't congruous. It wasn't consistent with that. And as I bowed down and was willing to make myself a fool for Christ's sake, inside of me something broke. I thought I was bowed down, but there was a part of my heart that wasn't. And it was the part that was still standing. And the Lord knew that if I just got down and expressed with my, with my body what I was already saying with my words, if I just expressed it, it would break, and it did. And I began to weep, and, I, and the beauty of the Lord became more clear to me, and my heart was more submitted. What you do with your body expresses what is true, but it reinforces what is true. So now we're going to worship the Lord. And I challenge you, I challenge you to worship God because He's worthy. And I challenge you to mature in the Lord to take on the responsibility of worshiping God, that others may be blessed even if you aren't. I challenge you to put God before every, 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 every other consideration in your life.